Our foundational text will, will be in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. As Acts 2 opens up, uh, the apostles and a number of others are gathered together in one place. They're praying. The Holy Spirit falls. And uh, uh, it appears that tongues of fire settle on them, and they begin uh, giving, the, announcing the praises of God, declaring the praises of God. In a number of different foreign languages, we see those, those nations listed in verses 9 through 11. Uh, some of the people thought that they were drunk. Peter got up and answered that accusation and said, they're not drunk. This is the fulfillment of God's promise from Joel. <clears throat> the point of God's promise was not dreams, visions, and prophecy. The point of God's promise was the new covenant being fulfilled in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit for redemption and the preparation for final judgment. People often forget this. Just, just to say, it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, even your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male slaves and female slaves. On those days, I will in those days pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will put wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and it will be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So the giving of the Holy Spirit is an inauguration of the last days that comes to a culmination of really the, the destruction of everything and a division into, between those who trust Christ and those who do not. And then Peter expands on that message. He brings it to a close by saying in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And at that they were cut to the heart. And they said, Men, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when God pulls out, pours out the Spirit in the last days, as according to the promise of Joel, he doesn't pour it out indiscriminately. He pours it out upon those who repent and believe. We see in verse 40, with many other words, he solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. So then those who received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And verse 42 then brings us to our text. And they were continuing daily, or they, they were continuing, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So recently, this past week, I was on my way to, to pick up Kevin from mom's house, and I was flipping around on the radio, and there was somebody on 96.3, and I, I didn't recognize his voice. I don't know who he was. And he was finishing up uh, his message and praying for himself and his church, praying for his listeners. And, and a, a lot of the prayer I had no, no issue with. Lord, soften our hearts. I've got no problem with that. But then he said, reveal yourself to us in new ways. And that 
causes a red flag for me. When Linda and I were uh, still engaged, we, we met some people, they're still friends, uh, and they invited us to their church. And so we went to their church. We were brand new Christians, brand new Christians. And uh, this was a full-on Pentecostal charismatic swinging from the chandeliers church. I mean, it was stunning to us. It was amazing to us because we're brand new Christians. And here are these people who have been Christians, and they say, this is the Spirit of God doing this. So we were just amazed. And then we noticed that the same woman got up every week and spoke in tongues, and the same person got up every week to, to interpret that tongue, and the interpretation was always the same, almost word for word. And being the smart aleck that I am, I started thinking after five or six weeks, man, these people are stupid. God has to keep telling them week after week to do what they're doing. And what, he, what the message was, as I remember, was, I am Jesus, worship me. Well, that's why we're there. Other things became apparent to us. We ended up leaving, but we, we weren't necessarily... Uh, we weren't necessarily convinced about what was taking place, that all of it was problematic. As we grew in the Lord, we came to realize how dangerous it is to, for, for somebody to say constantly that they're pursuing new experiences and exciting experiences. It might reveal a consumer mindset that says, what we do here just is not exciting enough. It's just not thrilling enough. Should be like a movie, right? There should be a first act and a second act and a third act, and it should grab you in the first act, and then the second act it should, it should introduce this conflict, and in the third act it should exp- it should just explode, and you go home just feeling wonderful. That's not what the fellowship of the saints is about. The the man or woman who prays constantly for new and exciting experiences, who says, Lord, reveal yourself in in new ways, might be very well saying, I'm bored with the old ways. These aren't meaningful anymore. They're not sufficient anymore. I don't get a thrill from them anymore. The old ways are not insufficient for true spiritual life. But it's true that they tend not to appeal to our sinful flesh because they they call us to be submitted. They call us to be quiet in our spirit before the Lord. And many of us just don't find Bible study and prayer and spiritual fellowship and and the ordinances exciting. Now, I, I love studying scripture, but I'm a little odd. I love diving into the details. So what we see as the church has been born in verse 42 is what the reformers came to call the ordinary means of grace. They're ordinary. They're not special. They're not uncommon. They're not restricted to most and only available to some. They're just ordinary. Day by day. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and and to prayers. New Year's Day, the first Sunday of the year, is is often when we we kind of preach about what's going to come and 
here, here's, here's a time for some resolutions, and I invite you not to make resolutions because resolutions get, get broken. Don't make resolutions. Just do these things. So let, let's talk about them in turn. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, that is, to Scripture. The apostles brought to them the Scriptures. Now, at this time, the Scriptures are the Old Testament. They're also relating the, the, the teachings of Jesus, the stories of what Jesus did, and repeating what Jesus taught them. The scriptures are absolutely indispensable for spiritual growth. There's no growth without the word of God. When Jesus prayed for his, his uh, disciples and he prayed for us in John 17, 17, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That's how we know what truth is, is that it's found in Scripture. Peter picks up on this decades later and gives us kind of the application of it. He says, therefore, laying aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by the pure milk of the word you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord tells us that conversion is necessary for spiritual growth. Those who are not in Christ can't grow in Christ. The first thing for them is, is the gospel. They have to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Any attempt to disciple non-Christians results in legalism. As I preach to believers and I, and I unpack the principles of the word of God and the commands and, and the oracles of scripture, then the Holy Spirit goes to work within us. And he teaches us to trust those things and to believe them. And to some degree, this is one of the reasons I don't give a lot of specific application. To some degree, then, to a great degree, the Holy Spirit customizes that application for your life. As you live today where you are in the relationships you have and what you face in life. I, I, I have a hard time applying the scripture to myself. How on earth would I apply it to, to you? So I teach it and let the Holy Spirit do that. But when you teach the word to unbelievers, when you try and disciple unbelievers, what you end up doing is avoiding the principles and the teachings of scripture and just tell them the, the what's. Just do this. Just say this here. Just kneel here. Just do this. There's a Latin phrase that I can't remember right now that has to do with the means of grace, and it's the, the primary difference between, uh, b- between orthodox, in the, in the theological sense, orthodox Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, and, and Reformation theology. And what they would say is, Doing these things achieves a result because doing them, the power that they produce is in the thing itself. The later, the, the end of the service this morning, as we share the Lord's table together, Roman Catholic theology, Eastern Orthodox theology would say, when you receive the, the elements, they do their work whether you think they will or not. What the reformers said is, no, the working of the things, the power of those things is in your faith in Christ, not in the thing. And that's why Paul says, don't partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy way. The result, the outcome of that, the the outcome of baptism, the outcome of Bible study, the outcome of prayer, 
is, is significantly dependent on your faith and your relationship with Christ. Simply reciting the thing doesn't get it done. How can we best benefit from the scriptures in the coming year? Well, we need to hear them or read them. We need to hear them or read them. Hearing the word of God is tremendously important. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. We need to remember that for 90% of human history, I believe the earth was created about 6,000 years ago. So for 90% of human history, human beings have heard the word. The vast majority didn't have the word in their hands as, as you and I do. That came about first because of the printing press. Johannes Gutenberg printed Latin Vulgate. And then it came because of the sacrifices and literally the sacrifices of men like John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, John Rogers, who literally died for the principle of translating the scripture into the people's language. But for the majority of human history, people had to hear it. And so don't don't discount hearing. Later on, when I I speak about fellowship and the gathering of ourselves together, I'm going to read from Hebrews 10, and don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. And one of the significant purposes of this gathering is to hear the word proclaimed. It's wonderful to just have the scriptures in front of you. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But we need, we need to be taught. I need to be taught. You need to be taught. So if you're not reading the Bible on a daily basis, hearing perhaps, then start. My wife says, just keep your bookmark moving. How much should I read? Enough to move your bookmark. Just read enough to move your bookmark. But, but here's some information for you. If you'll read four chapters a day, you'll finish the Bible in less than a year. The average reading speed is 238 words per minute. Yours will vary, of course. But at 238, 238 words a minute, 10 minutes a day will take you through the entire Bible in about 300 days. 55 hours if you want to do it in one sitting. If you do have a regular Bible reading plan, then change it up. It's okay to repeat what you've been doing if it works for you, but feel free to change it up. Uh, For instance, this is what I do. I look for specific themes. This year as I read through, uh, I'm looking for indications of the mercy of God and the judgment of God. And what that does is that keeps me aware. It keeps me vigilant. I started my reading about two weeks ago. And so I'm, I'm almost done with Leviticus now. I take, I take 20, 25 minutes in the morning and just read. I spend a good amount of my time studying discrete passages, small passages. And so the benefit to me of reading is to get big chunks, to get the big picture all at one time. So you could look for statements about the sovereignty of God, about the love of God, or other attributes of God. You could look for signs of God's power. You could look for prayers or promises. You could look for truths that you could use in evangelism and make note of them as you're reading. If you've been reading 10 minutes a day, why not 15? If reading is difficult for you, there are a number of audio Bibles that are excellent. 
You could also do another thing that I am also doing. You could take shorter books and read them daily for a month. And really immerse yourselves in them. So uh, 31 books of the Bible, 14 in the Old Testament, 17 in the New Testament, are seven chapters or less. You can read those in less than 10 minutes. 20 of those books you can read in less than six minutes. So imagine reading Joel, three chapters, daily for a month. Or Philippians, four chapters, daily for a month. As you do that, you get to about the 15th or the 20th, and it's starting to kind of, you're anticipating, and it's starting to get a little bit old. And then between the 20th and the 30th or the 28th or the 31st, whenever you do it, all of a sudden you'll start making connections within the book of the themes. If you can do this, then by the end of the year, you've read a dozen books of the Bible 30 times. And all of that is a wealth that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance when you need to know it. We need the word. We also need fellowship. They were continually devoting themselves to the fellowship. <clears throat> we need the word. We can't live the truth if we don't know the truth, but we need to be around other believers as well. Let's just all clear at one time. <clears throat> there you go. Uh, fellowship here is not mainly or primarily friendship. It means walking with another person through the issues of daily life so that that person has an effect on us and we have an effect on them. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen says, Iron sharpens iron. And so in the same way, one man sharpens another. That's the nature of this fellowship. A lot of people are uncomfortable with this, but it's true. God created us with needs he will not meet. He looked at Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone. He didn't look at Adam and say, I don't know what's wrong with him. If he loved me, I'd be enough for him. I've heard people, I've heard Christians intimate that. That if you really love the Lord, he's enough. But he created us in such a way that he refuses to meet some of our needs. So he created a woman for Adam, and he created all of us for all of us. There's different levels of relationship, obviously. Not every relationship is marital. God brought all the animals to Adam, if you look in Genesis 2, but none of them was suitable. A lot of people have pets that are dear to them, but they cannot fill that role of another person. We need that other person. This is where the author of, of Hebrews really underlines this point significantly. In Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and then he gives us three applications of that first let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water in my reading this morning in leviticus i read about the preparations for the priests 
as to what they had to do to prepare themselves, especially the high priest on the Day of Atonement, and the sacrifices they had to bring, and the clothing, it had to be just right, and they had to be dressed, and there was a breastplate, and there's the Urim and the Thummim, and there's just all kinds of stuff. Jesus has inaugurated a new and living way through his flesh. So we don't come with the flesh of animals, we come with Jesus' sacrifice. We don't come dressed in those complicated clothes. We come dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And because of that, we can draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, which was a picture of what that sa- those sacrifices did in, in removing sin or covering sin. The second application is let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful since Jesus has inaugurated a new and living way through his own death on the cross. We need to hold on to our faith firmly and in full confidence. We don't need to be afraid of it. We don't need to be apologetic for it. And we certainly must not compromise it. As we've been reading through Hosea, we've been reading about a a people, the people of Israel, who compromised constantly. The writer of Hebrews says, don't do that. You don't need to do that. Jesus has accomplished everything any false god you think promises. There's no such thing as a false god. But Jesus has already accomplished it. There's no need to do that. And then the third application is let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he presents here three applications of our redemption. The first is that we would come boldly before the throne of grace, as another verse says. The second is that we would hold on stubbornly and confidently to our faith in Jesus Christ. And the third is that we would be meaningfully meaningfully engaged in one another's lives to encourage other believers to love and good works. That's really significant. That he would take our times of fellowship, not coffee. Coffee's great. Not disputing that at all. But when there's a spiritual focus, primarily Sunday morning, but other times during the week, to put that on the same level as our access to God the Father and and the certainty of our faith. This is a, a crucial time. I think that our gatherings together on a weekly basis, faithfully, consistently, is being proclaimed through the heavenly places as the people of God simply continue to meet. I don't think that we see nearly all of the results in, this, in, in our world, certainly, and I don't think we see really any of the results spiritually of simply being, being faithful as we worship God. Remember what Jesus said? As he was entering for the, the triumphant entry, the Pharisees came and said, stop these people from what they're saying. And Jesus said, I tell you something, if they don't say this, the very rocks will cry out. 
we are here. The people of God are on earth. He's always remained, uh, maintained a remnant so that the people of God are constantly lifting up his praises and his worship. The third element that we have in the verse has to do with the ordinances. They were continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. I don't think that he's speaking simply about a meal together. I think he's speaking about the Lord's table. Jesus gave us two practices to follow. We sometimes call them ordinances. I don't know why they're called ordinances. Maybe because they're orders. I don't know. The first is baptism. Baptism is the immersion of a Christian in water as a sign of their unity with Jesus and his death and resurrection. It's a one-time event. We don't baptize people over and over again. The second ordinance is the Lord's table, which is what I believe is in view here. I believe that the apostles took Jesus' command to remember his death seriously. And as that church began to gather, as those 3,000 came in, one of the first things that they were told is, here's the picture of what Jesus has accomplished for you in the bread and the cup. And, and he's drawing that from Passover. No matter how long we've been in Christ, no matter how much of the Bible you know or don't know, no matter what you've done in ministry and where, we never grow beyond the need to remember that we are sinners for whom a Savior has died. And so no matter how far you've gotten down the road, if you'd like to put it that way, on a monthly basis at One Hope Fellowship, we celebrate the Lord's table, which means you you come that great distance that you've traveled down the road back to the cross at the head of that road. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Nobody's better. Nobody's more holy. Nobody is more sufficient. We remember at the foot of the cross in the Lord's table that we are sinners and that we have a Savior. We don't want to remember that we're sinners. We don't want to remember that. We, we want to say, but that's, that's done. I'm, I'm past that sin. I'm past that need. But in this, in this act of remembrance, we see our unity with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. We see what he has done for us. There's a reminder of our union with Christ, but 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that there's unity with one another as well. Verses 16 and 17 says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. He hasn't shifted all of a sudden to a basic meal. He's He's anticipating his conversation about the Lord's table. The Corinthians had fallen into the pattern of being syncretists. During the week, they were worshiping at other idols, at other temples. They were participating in other rules. And then they were coming on on the Lord's day, celebrating the Lord's table. And Paul in this passage says that's not wrong. 
What, what fellowship does Belial have with Christ? N- nothing. To be a Christian means to worship Jesus exclusively. And that's not only because of our unity with him, but our unity with one another as well. That's why we close the Lord's table to those who are not Christians. It's because it's not just a personal ritual. It's a picture of the unity of the body. And those who are not in Christ simply don't have a a place at the table. If somebody feels left out by that, if you meet somebody who feels left out by that, do this. Give them the gospel and urge them to repent as we have and to believe as we have, and they'll find that there's a place waiting for them at the table. The, The fourth element that we have is prayer. They were continually devoting themselves to the prayers, plural. Uh, So just to be clear, I know I don't have to say this, but it makes me feel better. Prayer is not self-talk. Prayer is not meditation. Prayer is not some kind of inner therapy. Prayer is an act of worship in which we call upon God to be our God. The Baptist Catechism created by Benjamin Keach borrows heavily from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It defines prayer this way. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. So God speaks to us in his word, which is living and alive and sharper than any two-edged sword, and we answer him back in prayer. Knowing his will, knowing the majesty of Christ, knowing our own sins, knowing our weaknesses, knowing our needs, we pray. We pray. For some, prayer is really as natural as breathing. For others, and this is the group I'm in, prayer has to be deliberate. Prayer is not natural. So for us, if if we don't pray on a daily basis, then we need to start. We can greet the Lord when we wake up in the morning and submit our our day to the Father for his glory. We can commit ourselves to exalting the name of Christ in everything that we do. Uh, We can ask the help of the Spirit of God as we go through the day to lead us and to protect us. We can keep the line open, pray without ceasing, as it were. I've encouraged people at times, when you pray, don't say amen at the end. Now, amen just really means may it be this way. But amen has kind of become a way of of hanging up. So the next time you pray, don't say amen. You'll, You'll feel really weird. You'll feel like you've got this live connection going on, which is how it, how it is all the time anyway. If you're not sure about uh, how to pray, how to take five minutes and pray or ten minutes and pray, then, then do this. Most of you probably have the Lord's Prayer um, memorized. Use that as an outline. Don't just recite it. Expand on the categories that it represents. So, Honor God as your Father in heaven. Praise him for his holiness and his other attributes. Seek his kingdom. Submit to his will. 
Ask him to provide your basic daily needs. Ask forgiveness for your sins as you forgive the sins of others. Seek his protection from sin and the evil one and ask him to lead you in righteousness for his namesake and give him all the glory. And if you think through those elements, you can pray for five minutes or ten minutes or an hour. If you're praying for others, you can use Colossians 1, 9 to 12 as a guide. I love this one. There's, there's eight elements there. Paul says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that, first, you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Second, that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Third, that you may please him in all respects. Four, that you may bear fruit in every good work. Fifth, multiplying in the knowledge of God. Sixth, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Seventh, so that you would be steadfast and patient. Eight, joyously giving thanks to the Father. Those are pretty good things to pray. If you want to pray for me and you're not sure what, turn to Colossians 1, 9 to 12 and just pray that. That's all pretty good stuff right there. As we bring it home, I just want to remind you that the ordinary means of grace are just that. They're ordinary. They're common. For those of you who have been in the Lord for for probably any length of time, nothing I've said this morning is surprising. And that's because there's nothing new under the sun. Ordinary means they're commonly available to all of us. They're normal. They're typical. They're regular. means they're not stunning. They're not going to stand out as something remarkable. We want our spiritual growth to be like growing herbs. We want to be able to to plant a few basil basil seeds and in a a week or two start seeing leaves come up. Spiritual life is really like growing pineapples. It takes three years and then the plant dies. It takes a lifetime. It's a marathon, not a sprint. There's no microwave way to get through this. I know I talk about myself all the time, and that's just what you have to put up with. So a year ago when I was diagnosed with with uh, diabetes, my A1C was 14.1, which is pretty high. At my one-year checkup, my A1C was 5.6. It was normal. How did I accomplish that? Well, I didn't do it overnight. I simply simply stayed regular with the medication, and I changed my diet. I didn't do anything else. I didn't do anything spectacular. And at the end of a year, it had produced really good fruit. What we do in terms of the word and fellowship and prayer and and the Lord's table is not about today. It's not about next week. It's about a year from now and five years from now and ten years from now. Sinking our roots down deep. There's no secret to it. Just do it. Father, we give you thanks for your love for us as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table then to come back to the foot of your cross, Jesus, to remember that the bread is a a picture of your body given for us, for our nourishment, for our encouragement, to remember that your blood is has been shed for us for the the forgiveness of our sins. 
And not to forget, Lord, that you were raised from the dead for our justification. You encourage us to examine our hearts, that we would not partake in this in in an unworthy way. What we're looking for is a, a refusal to acknowledge our sin and a refusal to acknowledge the significance of your body around us. So, Lord, we do acknowledge our sin before you. We confess that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We need a Savior every day. And we confess, Lord, that by your design, we need one another. And we thank you for this gift that we have. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen.